1: Well, how do you feel about how governments acted to fight COVID-19? There's a new Ipsos survey out this morning. Two out of three Canadians say that governments should have acted, well, more quickly, essentially, to prevent cases of COVID-19 from spreading. Let's break this down a little bit more. Joining us now is Daryl Burker, the Ipsos Public Affairs CEO. Good morning, Daryl. Morning, Simi. Okay, so let's talk about this. So which level of government, though, did, did that come into this, about who should have acted sooner? Well, initially,
2: we just asked people governments overall, but then we did break it between the federal and the provincial governments. And, and uh, you know, federal and provincial governments, reasonably close, uh, uh, although um, uh, federal government definitely leading, leading the pack in terms of uh, where people are placing blame. And if, you can, if we go back to the kind of the initial question we asked about governments overall, things like travel restrictions, border restrictions, those kinds of things, which are clearly in the, uh, in the area of uh, authority of the federal government, uh, seem to carry a lot of the burden here.
1: Okay. And what about when it came down to, like, who is really at fault for, I thought this was interesting, too, about, well, who's really at fault for COVID-19 spreading? And it sounds like Canadians are kind of pointing the finger at each other on that one.
2: Yeah. Yeah, they're looking in the mirror, but they're also looking through the window over at their neighbors. And and uh, the reason for this is because people, uh, it's not a mystery anymore uh, as to how, um, COVID spreads. I mean, it it, it spreads from, you know, contact between, between human or among human beings, uh, um, either through the air or on surfaces or whatever. So they know that they have a personal responsibility for this. Yet, uh, when you look at the government's performance here, people aren't letting them off the hook.
1: And how did that break down by province?
2: Well, when it comes to uh, um, who uh, people are most likely to blame individual Canadians, right where you're sitting in British Columbia, more people are likely to blame uh, individual Canadians percentage-wise than any other part of the country, followed by Atlantic Canada. Uh, but uh, when it comes to uh, um, blaming governments, uh, government blame is fairly ubiquitous across the country. Although, <laughs> interestingly enough, Ontario residents are the ones who are most likely to blame the federal government.
1: Really? Yeah. Oh, that is interesting. So, what is it that they think would have worked? Like in terms of stricter travel measures, uh, what did they think that there should have been more travel bans, curfews, lockdowns?
2: Yeah. When you, when you look at, at, all, at the, the the totality of the research that we've done for Global News over the space of the last several months on COVID, it's pretty clear. Uh, that the public uh, is less reticent about locking things down than the than the government seem to be, um, and uh, they 're prepared to do uh, you know fairly stringent things in terms of how they live their lives, but are really, really tough on things like border controls so you know there, there's a uh, there's a real question here i think among in, in the public's mind about how it was that we allowed our our airports for example to be open and, and flights coming through those as long as they've been coming through them because uh, we've only fairly recently closed that down or restricted it in a significant way. So those are the kinds of questions that people raise about uh, about what government should have done sooner.
1: Now, when you break it down, uh, like in terms of age groups and whatever, there were, some, there were some differences there that were interesting, right?
2: Yeah. When you, when you take a look at uh, the age groups, uh, Younger people are the ones who are more likely to blame the provinces. And I think there's probably a correlation there between uh, young people who are feeling the most um, uh, hard done by by the, uh, by the restrictions yeah. that are put in place. So if we're asking, you know, who's suffering the most as a result of this, it tends to be younger people. So the restrictions are in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, the power of the, uh, the provincial governments. So they're, they're kind of looking at them and, and asking some questions about whether all, all they've gone through has been worth it after we've been in this for almost a year.
1: Yeah, almost a year. Hard to believe. Daryl, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks, Amy. Have a good morning. That's Daryl Bricker, the Ipsos Public Affairs CEO, about their new poll out this morning. So when they asked Canadians... Who is to blame for this spreading, or what is to blame? Uh, BC actually residents more than any other province said that individual Canadians, like we or other people, are to blame. We are to blame for this. 40% of the people surveyed here in BC said individual Canadians are to blame. That was the highest. Quebec was the next at 35, and Atlantic Canada said 35, and Alberta said 21%. So that kind of correlates with the emails that I get from people telling me that. They're frustrated with what they see going on out there. If you want to weigh in, Simmy at CKNW.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simmy.
1: Well, if you checked out any of the impeachment proceedings yesterday in the United States, then you probably saw some pretty odd opening statements, like bizarre rhetoric from the defense team for former President Donald Trump. Have a listen to his lawyer, Bruce Castor.
2: You know, it's funny, this is an aside,
1: but it's funny. You ever notice
2: how when you're talking or you hear others talking about you uh, when you're home in your state, they they will say, you know, I talked to my senator or I talked to somebody on the staff of my senator, it's always my senator. Why is it that we say my senator?
1: We say that because the people you represent are proud of their senators. Yeah, I'm not quite sure where he was going with that. There was a lot of moments... Like that from the defense team there. Uh, Now, remember, this is the second impeachment trial, right? Really getting underway today after the Senate voted 56 to 44 in favor of moving forward. Uh, The former president is facing the charge of incitement to insurrection in light of the uh, riots back on the Capitol in January. Let's talk to an expert on this issue now. Joining us is Robert Gordon, a professor at the Stanford Law School. Uh, Good morning and thank you for joining Joining
3: us. Good morning.
1: What did you think of those opening statements yesterday?
3: Well, I thought it was a little bizarre. The, the uh, supposedly what they were supposed to be talking about was whether the Constitution permits the impeachment of a president who's no longer the trial of a, uh, uh, of a president who's no longer in office, and uh, the uh, Bruce Castor, the the lawyer. Who made the opening statement for the for the for the trump team seemed, seemed to want to talk about almost anything else and uh, they, uh, uh, later later, some of the people on the Trump team were trying to say that he was trying to lower the emotional temperature in the in the room after the very dramatic and emotional opening statement by uh, uh by Jamie Raskin, the leader of the House managers. and maybe he was trying to do that, but uh it was a very very bizarre performance, and apparently, Trump himself was very unhappy with it.
1: I, I I can't really blame him for being unhappy with it. Like when when your lawyer says we had to change what we did at the last minute because what the other side did was so good. I don't think I've ever yeah. heard that before in a trial.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah, well sometimes sometimes the lawyers will compliment one another at, uh, at 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 the trials to try to try to be disarming and get the. Uh, Got on the right side of the of, of the jury, but um, this particular lawyer has a client who who likes people. <laughs> to, to, who likes people to to, to belch fire, um, and, uh, and not 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 people who compliment, pay flowery compliments to the other side. Right. It, the, the, right. The main thing about the statement was that it it just didn't seem to be relevant to anything the, uh, that was going on in the impeachment in the impeachment trial. So so it was so so it was quite bizarre. These these are what lo- this is a legal team that was cobbled together. Almost literally at the last moment, um, the the all of Trump's other lawyers have have quit trying to represent him. So, uh, so so he's left with whatever he can whatever he can pick up at uh, kind of a pickup team that he can gather together and, um, at the other moment's notice. Well,
1: this is what I was wondering. Then, I mean, is this what you get? When you did have to kind of get a last-minute legal team together, and it sounded like, even from all the stories, that there was a lot of argument over what the lawyers versus what the former president wanted to focus on in terms of defense at the trial.
3: Yes, I, I think the 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 uh, that was one issue I think on which the lawyers, they almost certainly had it right. Uh, the, the at least all the reporting was that. Trump wanted to continue to insist that he had won the election, the, and that all of his behavior was justifiable because he had been cheated out of a, out of a victory which he deserved. And uh, the and I think all of the lawyers that he's hired have tried to persuade him that this is a losing proposition that can only make his situation worse. The uh, because after all the, the 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 whole argument for the impeachment is that uh, is that Trump refused to accept the results of the election and therefore went around, went about trying to subvert it by all kinds of the illegal means, including stirring up a crowd for for uh, an assault on the Capitol. So it certainly wouldn't help his case to keep arguing that actually he really did win the election. I think yeah. uh, the, and uh, so the lawyers, I think, we have tried to talk him out of that strategy, but I think he still he still really wants to pursue it. He, he's a, a person who tends to nurse his grievances, and he really believes that he was cheated out of the election.
1: Now, Robert, what's going to happen now, then? What can people expect? It's, you know, I, I wasn't really paying attention to this because I thought, you know what, I was taking a break from American politics, but yesterday you couldn't ignore it again, right? It came roaring back. Yes. What's going to happen now over the next few days? <sighs>
3: uh what 's going to happen I think is it's pretty predictable that um that the uh impeachment managers are not going to get enough votes to convict trump um the Republican party has already signaled the uh that they're unwilling to convict uh, it they' they're 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 not willing to say they 've also signaled they 're not really willing to say that trump is innocent they 're all going to fall back. On this constitutional argument that you can 't try someone the for impeachment the, when he 's out of office, uh, an argument which I believe is, is is almost certainly incorrect, as was demonstrated yesterday but that's, that that I think is what 's going to happen. I think what the impeachment managers are trying to do uh, is to try to talk to the country at large they 're trying to convince the the real audience is not the senators in the chamber it 's the it 's the American people and the and 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 people elsewhere in the world and they're they're trying to persuade them that the that this is a, a politician who really shouldn't be eligible to run for office again even if he's not formally convicted in the senate i think that's now become the real objective of the impeachment exercise and uh and uh and it may it may have some results i the polling seems to indicate uh all we have right now is an ABC poll, which seems to suggest that about fifty-four percent of Americans so far the, think that Trump ought to be the, uh, convicted in the impeachment trial. And I think the, um, the House impeachment managers are trying to raise that number and trying to uh, trying to ensure that um, that uh, that Trump and Trumpism uh, are no longer a force in American politics. I think that's now become the object of the exercise.
1: Once again, fascinating stuff. Robert, thank you for your time.
3: You're most welcome.
1: As Robert Gordon, a professor at Stanford Law School, talking about what we've been watching unfold that last 24 hours. I mean, yesterday morning, watching those impeachment proceedings unfold and listening to... I, I was trying to avoid it, like I said, right? But then I found that I couldn't, because everywhere on social media, people were like, can you believe this? What's happening right now? So I thought, all right, I better turn this on and see what's happening. And I was listening to it, and I thought, you can't... Are they actually trying to defend the former president with this with these opening statements it just seemed bizarre i think that's the only word i could anybody can come up with to describe it they'll be back at it again today and now i know even more people are probably going to be watching that for sure
0: this is mornings with simi
1: all right, let's catch up with what's been going on at the Cullen Commission. This, of course, is the inquiry into money laundering in this province. And the last couple of weeks have been just, you know, head shaking testimony, person after person, just reiterating what we have suspected for so long, which is the reason why, you know, so many in the public were calling for this inquiry. And that is there was clearly a culture of allowance at the very top allowing people to come in with questionable amounts of money and gamble it away, make it legit in casinos in this province. Walter Sue was the man formerly in charge of developing the VIP program for great Canadian gaming. And he testified yesterday and he said that it wasn't his job to worry about where the cash was coming from. John Hua has more
4: crude. As it sounds, we were serving hamburgers. They wanted steak.
5: It was Walter Sue's job to help Great Canadian attract high rollers with a premium VIP experience.
4: People that would uh, be emotionally prepared and financially capable of building very large, playing very large sums of money.
5: But when it came to any risks associated with increased amounts of cash coming into casinos, Great Canadian's former vice president of player and gaming development told the Cullen Commission that was left to those in charge of compliance and law enforcement.
4: I didn't think that much about it. Um, To be direct and honest about it, it didn't concern me.
5: Su was concerned about how a government mandate to keep casinos cash only turned some players off. In 2004, he said an attempt to introduce player accounts and casino credit, conflicted with policies meant to promote responsible gaming.
4: Money makes them feel dirty. Money made them feel seedy.
5: There was also a section of the clientele Su told the commission was predominantly from mainland China. And had no problems with dealing in cash.
4: They're used to playing with cash in their world. When they come over here, they're used to playing with it.
5: Sue was questioned about a 2014 business case to open a new high roller suite at the River Rock, which mentioned how campaigns against corruption and money laundering in Macau by Chinese and U.S. authorities might drive players to BC.
6: PRC VIPs will encounter more restrictions to access funds for gaming in Macau and Las Vegas reducing their desire to frequent these destinations and diverting their play to the River Rock Casino.
5: Sue told the commission this wasn't mentioned as a business opportunity, just a geopolitical observation.
4: These people just didn't want profile in Macau anymore at that point in time.
5: Commission counsel also asked Sue about any communication he had with fellow Richmond Oval board member Peter German after he was hired by the province to write a report on money laundering in BC.
4: On the one hand, he probably assumed that I knew, but he needed to know that I know.
5: Sue made it clear he never directed German to not interview him for the report, but did speak with him to address what he called the elephant in the room.
4: We're here for port business. Let's just concentrate on that. Let's ensure that there's no conflict or even perception of conflict. We don't need to talk about it. And if you need to talk about it, you know where I work.
5: German never did reach out when the Cullen Commission asked Sue if he thought proceeds of crime might have entered great Canadian casinos. The man who built a career around knowing high rollers said he never saw a thing. John Hua, Global News.
1: Never saw a thing. It's astounding, isn't it? So they knew that places like Macau and Nevada were uh, providing an unwelcome atmosphere for people who dealt with a lot of cash, meaning they had regulations to protect their systems. And they thought, yeah, let's let those people come and gamble here and we can take their money and make money off of it. That by definition is a problem right? And yet they didn't see it. See no evil, hear no evil. It sounds like that's what was going on for years. More to come, of course, on the Cullen Commission, and we'll keep you posted on how that goes.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about
1: what else is going on out there. And Prime Minister Trudeau making a funding announcement this morning having to do with transit. Have a listen.
7: We're investing almost $15 billion for new public transit projects over the next eight years. And because we recognize that communities need predictable funding to be able to effectively plan ahead, this includes a permanent public transit fund of $3 billion a year ongoing, starting in 2026. These investments will support major public transit projects like subway extensions, help electrify electrify fleets with zero emission vehicles, They will also be used to meet the growing demand for walkways and paths for cycling and help rural and remote communities deliver projects to meet their mobility challenges.
1: Yeah, but 2026... I mean, who's going to be in power in 2026? That's a huge assumption there. This is money that I know cities, municipalities across the country would love to have. Uh, They could count on some funding to make some investments in transit projects. But that far in the future, you just don't know what's going to be happening at that point. Federal Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, though, was also on hand for that announcement. He, of course, is a local MP, and he was talking about the need for that kind of funding right here in Metro Vancouver.
6: This is an important uh, issue here in British Columbia. I can tell you that uh, there will be a lot of folks waking up with a smile when they hear the news, uh, given how challenging the traffic congestion issues are here in the Lower Mainland. It's certainly welcome news from a whole range of perspectives. I think it's welcome news for workers and companies who will benefit from creating Canada's next generation of world-class electric buses. It's certainly welcome news for commuters, and it's really good news for climate. Uh, You know, one quarter of Canada's emissions come from the transportation sector, and gas and diesel buses are a major contributor to that. Buses also have a very long lifespan, and that means that the choices that we make today are going to have impacts for uh, for decades to come. That is certainly why we have uh, continuously invested in public transit since 2015. Here in Vancouver, that has included upgrades to both the SkyTrain Expo and the Millennium Lines, that's also why reducing emissions from the transport sector is a key part of Canada's recently announced strengthened climate plan that puts us on a path to exceeding our current 2030 Paris Agreement targets.
1: Yeah, okay, blah, blah, blah. Well, let's get down to brass tacks on this. What people in Metro Vancouver really want to know from the federal government is two projects that we want to see happen. One, extend that SkyTrain to Langley. Make that happen happen and extend that SkyTrain to UBC help make that happen too those are the two big projects you could talk about all the other stuff all you want to but those are the two things that we are waiting to hear about we've planned it we even know where the stations should go people expect it people want to see it let's make those two things happen not just talk about funding for you know 2026 and beyond that
0: this is mornings with Simi
1: You know, when the new regulations went into effect a couple of months ago in terms of limiting how many people could gather and cutting back on, you know, groups of people being together, the hardest hit, one of the hardest hit areas was definitely people who regularly attend church. And when we had these churches that were defying the rules out in the Fraser Valley, there was a lot of attention being paid to them. I I got so many emails during that time from people saying, why aren't they cracking down? Why are, you know, we doing something about that? Well, it turns out these things do take time because they were ticketed, uh, they were ticketed again, and now we have it moving into this legal phase where they are now gearing up for a big legal battle. So the provincial health officer and the attorney general are seeking an injunction in court against three particular churches uh, for and accusing them of violating the public health order against in person services. So these are churches in Langley, in Abbotsford, and Chilliwack. The argument on the church's side of things is that you can't prove that there was any kind of transmission of COVID-19 from our gatherings. Therefore, we should be allowed to get together and they are claiming it is a constitutional right to gather to worship together, that religious freedom should make them exempt from public health orders. So that is going to end up being a court fight. So this is an application in BC Supreme Court. The churches did file a petition challenging the province's prohibition on services, and this is definitely going to be going to court, and you're going to hear a lot more about that. So Romina Daya explained how this happened, how health officials are kind of upping the ante here, and what the other side has to say about that. To pray or not to pray
8: in church that is the question. Three Christian churches from Langley, Abbotsford and Chilliwack will be facing off against the province in BC Supreme Court Friday.
2: We're very confident um, that uh, all of the actions that Dr. Henry has taken are consistent with the Canadian Charters of Rights and Freedoms, but the matter is before the courts and so uh, and it will be decided there.
8: The province's top doctor now seeking an injunction prohibiting patrons from gathering to worship, hold baptisms, funerals, or any other event in violation of public health orders. The government also requesting an order to give police the authority to detain anyone they believe is even planning to attend.
2: Well, I think our job and Dr. Henry's job is to reduce transmission of COVID-19 in British Columbia. And so we support
9: those efforts. We pray that they will relent and allow churches to be open once again.
5: I think the order being sought is overbroad and is an excessive escalation of this issue. Lawyer Marty Moore says
8: his clients have been conducting services safely for months. Worshippers questioning why religious services are banned, but drinking in restaurants and bars is considered safe.
5: Our clients are responsibly exercising their charter freedoms. And the government has not provided evidence that shows that our clients' uh, responsible behavior is the source of any COVID transmission.
8: Moore says his clients have already received thousands in fines, which will be dealt with in court. While he acknowledges the government's position that charter rights are not absolute, Moore contends the province has not justified the infringement. Romina Dea, Global News.
1: So as you can tell, it is shaping up to be a pretty interesting legal fight on that, and the argument itself um, will definitely have a lot of debate attached to it. I mean, many churches have been inspired throughout the pandemic to continue having services; they're just doing it in different ways. We've speak we've spoken to. Um, several religious leaders here on the show who told us about the kind of creative ways in which they are helping their community uh, still have that feeling of togetherness, Um, you know, the idea that they don't necessarily need to have in-person services to make sure people feel that same feeling, and yet you still have these three churches who say, nope, that's not enough, we want to go back to doing things the way we did them before. So the legal fight is just shaping up. I have a feeling this one's going to be closely watched right across the country.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: All right, bundle up another day, another very, very cold day, actually. Global News meteorologist Mark Madriga is with us for the update on that. Hi, Mark. Hey, good morning, Simi. How cold uh, is uh, it, Mark? How cold?
9: Well, you know, I don't know. I grew up in the interior. Um, I, I went through a lot colder than this, although moving to the coast 30 years ago, I think, yeah, even minus even minus one we have out there right now is a little chilly for me. Uh, the wind chill is about minus five, so that's not too bad, although for our, our listeners in the Fraser Valley, it is colder right now. It feels minus 12 Abbotsford and minus 18 out in Hope because the wind uh, has picked up a little more there. So it will get colder that's the big story today a few flurries around i don't look for any significant snow but a few flurries and they're falling here and there right now but it's more about the cold later today and tonight and into the day tomorrow and uh, it's the outflow that arctic wind is going to continue to uh, pick up especially the fraser valley how sound and in parts of metro vancouver especially southern sections where we're more open to the fraser valley so increasing wind from the northeast later right through tomorrow morning at least and the Wind chill will be a factor. Uh, the calculation for wind chill in uh, a number of areas, especially the Fraser Valley, uh, for tonight and overnight, about minus 16 to minus 18. And uh, that's getting darn cold. As I say, it's already that in hope, so they'll probably get to about minus 25 wind chill. Um, so, yeah, getting colder, Simi, mm-hmm. and that will continue through tomorrow. We'll squeeze in a little sun later today and lots of sun tomorrow. And then uh, part two of this is uh, about uh, the potential for snow. As I say, a few flurries today, nothing much, but the charts are still all over the place as to how much may just fall for snow Friday night and into Saturday morning. Some of my charts are saying very little. Some of the computer models are saying, oh, maybe up to 10 centimeters. So at this point, there's lots of uncertainty. I'm kind of saying uh, on TV, and I'll say to you, a few centimeters. How about that? If you <laughs> You're
1: hedging your bets on that one, right? Like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's, yeah, I am just let's because go with of that. the uncertainty
9: yeah. of the computer charts. If, if the majority of the moisture Friday night, Saturday morning stays just south, of us, we'll get a lot less and we'll stay colder. If it comes a little closer to us, we'll get a bit more snow and a bit milder. So let's say a few centimeters of snow Friday night, Saturday morning. And how about if I keep you posted on that?
1: That's a good plan. I do want to say, though, I'm going to give you credit on this one, Mark. A couple of weeks ago on your Twitter feed, you did post a long-term outlook for the weather and you cited this polar vortex and cold temperatures coming. And I remember thinking at the time, I don't know, Mark, that's pretty far out, but you were bang on.
9: Well, on that one, for sure, uh, you know, what's interesting about that is uh, I was burned a few times by our computer charts for the long-term forecast, you know, out to a week, 10 days or more. So I kind of backed off on those long-term forecasts. <laughs> right. And that particular one I went with, and uh, it seems to be working out okay. So I'll, I'll take any credit you can give me. Usually uh, people bashing me for exactly. the, uh, the forecast. I know. So, That's why I like you so much, Sammy. You're so good to me.
1: (laughs) I wanted to make sure you got full credit for letting us know how cold we were going to be, Mark. So uh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Have a good day. That's our Mark Madriga, Global News Meteorologist there. It's true. I saw that tweet a couple weeks ago, and I thought, ooh, Mark going out on a limb there, calling for this polar vortex to head to the south coast, because we know how dicey that is to predict the weather here. Um, I once asked... Somebody about this, an expert about why. Why does it seem like our weather is just so inaccurate? Whereas you can go somewhere else. Uh, I remember being in Florida a couple of years ago in the summer. They could tell you to the hour what time it was going to rain. And of course, at that hour, it would rain. And I was fascinated by that because I thought that is so unlike the weather that we have at home. It's the combination here of the ocean, the mountains, and then you've got the valley and everything. And all of that combines to make the weather very unpredictable for us, as we all know this. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you know what, just be thankful today that we're dealing with potentially minus 10 on an Arctic outflow. Next door in Alberta, let me give you an idea of how cold it's going to be there. They're dealing with an extreme cold warning. Uh, Today in Calgary, the high during the day, is expected to be minus 23 degrees. The overnight low tonight, minus 35. That's how cold it is there. It's going to stay like that for the next couple of days, actually right through to the end of the week in Calgary, and it's the same situation at Edmonton. In fact, it is so cold there... How cold is it? It is so cold there that they've actually had infrastructure problems with pipes freezing and bursting. And we are talking water mains on streets that are having that happen in three instances because it is so cold there. So, yeah, the in- that's a polar vortex for sure. The high today in Regina is going to be minus 32. On uh, Thunder Bay, minus 33. It is cold right across the country. Usually where that little area where that doesn't really happen. Not this time. So yeah, bundle up out there today. As Mark said, few flurries expected around this morning, but nothing too serious. Uh, the potential for a greater accumulation of snow coming Friday night into Saturday morning. I guess that's a little bit better because you won't get the work-school kind of commute happening for that. But then again, it's the weather. So you never know if it's going to change, but you can count on the cold for the next couple of days for sure.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. Air Canada, WestJet,
7: Sunwing, and Air Transat are cancelling air service to all Caribbean destinations and Mexico.
1: That was Prime Minister Trudeau last week announcing new airline restrictions, meaning no end in sight for the airline sector. And now we hear Air Canada has pulled even more flights from its schedule and laid off 1,500 more of their employees. And that is just the latest round of layoffs for that company and that industry. It is struggling to adapt to travel restrictions at are essentially intended to cut down on the number of people who use their business. And that's tough to get out of no matter what. So joining us now to talk about the impact of this decision, it's Wesley Lesowski, who's the president of the Air Canada component of CUPE. Wesley, thank you for joining us.
10: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Now, with this latest round of layoffs, did that come as a surprise?
10: I wouldn't say it comes as a surprise uh, due to everything we're seeing that the federal government's putting out there with regards to restrictions on air travel.
1: How, um, what's the situation right now for employees then? Like, do they expect to be called back? Are some of them looking at this as permanent?
10: Um, I think it's a hard one. We have about 70, uh, 7,800 that could uh, be laid off at this point in in total out of a membership of just shy of 10,000 people. Um, so I think a lot of people look at it like the future is grim, um, but a lot of people obviously are holding out hope, uh, as are we, that at some point it's going to have to bounce back. But back to what level is is the big question, right?
1: Right. So what do you what are all those employees doing then? Are they waiting? Are they finding other jobs? Are they is the union providing them with support?
10: Yeah. So the the union definitely, um, if we have large um, career fairs or something like that uh, that's out there, we support them through that kind of stuff. Of course, we have other types of support that we offer through EAP, but um, a lot of the members are out there looking for work. A lot of them did have part-time work over the Christmas or holiday season. Um, so now it's just those that are coming into reality that this might be a little bit more longer term that need to look for long-term employment, right?
1: Right. So that would be tricky then. So what is the, the right of kind of coming back to work? How do you juggle that for uh, if Air Canada does decide that they need more employees?
10: Uh, it's certainly a challenge because you don't want to sign up or commit to anything long-term with another employer if you want to come back to Air Canada. The recall rates that our members have, fortunately, is five years uh, from date of layoff. So uh, that's quite an extensive period. Uh, but again, uh, we were hoping that by summertime there'd be recalls, and uh, it looks like we've lost well over half our membership. So none of this was predictable. So it leaves a lot of people kind of wondering, do I start up my foot off on a full-time career somewhere else on a different path or, or do I wait it out right
1: yeah what does that mean for the industry then Wesley because if you're losing all of these people that have been trained that have spent years in the industry and if they decide to give up on it what does that mean for the industry if it tries to get up and running again
10: It'll be very difficult um, for the industry just to restart. Uh, Like other jobs or uh, other forms of employment, you can't just flip a switch on the airline industry. Um, You know, from air traffic controllers to flight attendants to pilots to ground workers, there's substantial training that goes in uh, that's mandated either, you know, through Transport Canada or obviously through the employer. But yeah, there's certification processes or annual recurrent training and all that takes time. So as the workers sit out for a longer period of time, Um, The training goes up in length uh, for when you come back. So it it does create some problems when it starts. Um, Definitely work around, but it it does put things back.
1: So that's just not flipping a switch and having the industry up and running again, then, is it?
10: No, not at all.
1: Is this the same for airlines, like other airlines in Canada as well? Mm
10: -hmm. Yeah, everybody's under the same regulations, for sure.
1: Is there something that you think the federal government should be doing here or something that could be done differently?
10: Um, I think there's quite a few things that could have been done differently. Um, I.e., testing prior to departure uh, would have solidified this at the beginning. Um, and when I say testing prior to departure, I mean the rapid testing opposed to a three-day out test. Um, I think that would have put, you know, people's minds at ease, would have cut down on those entering the country with uh, COVID and would have reduced COVID flights as, as they've come to be known. Um, other things that I think the industry could engaging, uh, you know, with the the public on this kind of stuff. So advising the public what they're doing, but also actually engaging the stakeholders such as the unions. um, So we know what's going on with our members. We've reached out time and time again, and it's been met with silence. Um, The government has done nothing on a reach out to us, advising us what's going on. They have had some great programs uh, such as Q's, uh, CERB, that kind of stuff. But if the employers, uh, you know, don't pick up on that, or the members can't access it, um, it's it's completely useless to our group. Right.
1: So, you're, uh, do you think the airlines then were just waiting for things to get back to normal, rather than saying, "Hey, here's what we're going to change, and you can still fly safely"?
10: Sorry, the airlines.
1: Yeah. Do you, so you feel like they could have done more to advertise what they were doing to make things safe.
10: Um, I don't really think it's necessarily on the airlines to do that. And the reason I say that, and it could be quite controversial, is the fact that it's the federal government who imposed these steps. And I mean, primarily, I work, obviously, I work for Air Canada. I'm also the president of the airline division. So I, I respectfully look over nine different airlines when it comes to kind of lobbying efforts. But Air Canada was certainly an industry leader on this kind of stuff. Um, and move forward with this kind of stuff as soon as the pandemic was kind of known. We were the first ones to kind of withdraw service from Asia and then move forward with the clean care kits and stuff like that. So when you look at that, we did our part. But if there's nothing enforced prior to departure, again, I go back to the testing, then your guess is as good as the rest of the people's on who's going to enter that aircraft. And for me, it's about my member's safety and the flying public. So is that environment safe? I would say, yes, it is. But could it be safer? Of course it could be. Um, We see all the flights coming in that have COVID on them, and it grows, it grows, it grows. Even now that the implementation being put through by the federal government to, you know, have testing prior to departure, we still have people getting on board um, that are positive with COVID. So this is a concern It's because they've gotten sick or contracted it post the test, right? And this is the problem with the test being done three days out, and then somebody, you know, going to the airport or doing whatever they do in between coming to Canada, five days later, feeling sick, going to the doctor, finding out they have COVID, and then the tracing, bringing it back to a flight.
1: So you're saying even the three day out, if you're getting it at the three day point, and then waiting three days to get on the flight, there's still a chance you're going to get the virus. (laughs)
10: Exactly. And I think this is the the biggest concern. Again, flying is not unsafe. If you follow safe protocols, i.e. wear your mask, socially distancing, that kind of stuff. But All I'm getting at is it's still happening. So have we fixed the problem? Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. So more to come on this for sure. So would you like Mm -hmm. to see the rapid testing used more for airlines?
10: Absolutely. Rapid test prior to departure. um, Have it done. Have it passed and get people on. I mean, we all show up early for our flights. Airports are slow right now. Show up an hour earlier. uh, Go through the testing phase and, and move forward with it knowing who's entering the plane, right?
1: See what happens. Wesley, thank you.
10: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Wesley Lasuski is the president of the Air Canada component of QP talking about the ways that he thinks the industry and the federal government could help actually make uh, you know flying easier or safer for people, uh, really take the uncertainty out of it, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon. The government focused right now on the quarantine issue and still the three-day testing. So you have to be tested within 72 hours of arriving in Canada. And according to the union there, they feel that's still a bit of a loophole that we could do better.